Hi, Michael. It's very nice to have you here for the 12th edition on the, of the Ideas for India conversation series. Um, just to introduce myself, I'm the South Asia D Director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. Um, my guest with me is Professor Michael uh, Greenstone, who's the Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor in Economics, the College and the Harris School, Director of the Becker Friedman Institute at the University of Chicago and Director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. So he wears uh, a lot of distinguished hats. And we're going to be talking uh, today about environmental regulation in India uh, writ large. Uh, uh, both of us have uh, done a lot of research on air pollution and energy and environment problems in India. Um, and I'm going to be talking to Michael uh, about his work um, and about what we've learned over that period. Uh, so, Michael, um, let me just start by giving you some context for how this conversation came up. So, a couple of months ago, I think the uh, Yale Environmental Performance Index uh, was released. And, uh, you know, this is, as as I'm sure you know, a kind of ranking of countries uh, uh, put together by Yale University on environmental performance as they have it. Uh, and India ranked dead last on that index. Um, now, it's been criticized a lot in India for various reasons, which we might get to during the course of this conversation, but it's also a good opportunity to talk about some of the problems that we've been working on. So I guess I wanted to, uh, you know, start things off with this kind of, you know, top level question, which also applied to the Yale EPI. So if you look at the Yale Environmental Performance Index, all the countries on the top of that index tend to be rich and developed nations. And everybody at the bottom of that index is, uh, is a poorer developing country. And so one question is, you know, should we think of environmental pollution as basically being something that you get along with growth, you get rich, you outsource manufacturing, you have more money to spend on cleaning up the environment and on regulating industry. And so, it's a matter of time and needs to follow in the course of um, environmental growth? So first, that's a great question. And let me start by saying uh, it's unclear I should be interviewing you or you should be interviewing me. Uh, as you know, but maybe not all the people listening know, uh, we've been longtime collaborators and much of what I know and understand about environmental and energy questions in India comes from our collaborative work and things that uh, learned from you or learned from Nick Ryan or learned from Rohini Pandey or work on electricity with Robin Burgess. So I just want to acknowledge that from the start. Now, on your question, uh, there is, so let me even just back up and make it a little more wonky. Uh, there's an idea called the environmental Kuznets curve. Uh, and that idea became popular in the academic literature, uh, maybe about 15 or 20 years ago. And uh, the idea is that there's like an inverse U uh, where, where relationship between income and environmental quality. And it goes that the, uh, the best environmental quality is uh, when societies are very, very poor or when, uh, and they're not producing any pollution or when they're very, very rich. Uh, and the worst is uh, somewhere in the, in, in the middle at the top of the inverse U. Uh, and in some sense, that idea is uh, could lend great relief 
uh, to countries like India, uh, which is that the very high levels of pollution in India uh, are just a function of uh, waiting to get rich. Uh, and once the country gets rich, it will look like uh, the, it will have the low levels of air pollution that prevail in many parts of Europe uh, and the United States. Um, I think that it's a great idea. Uh, it's one of those ideas that is kind of, uh, it can't be killed because it has such intuitive sense to it. Uh, and even though in the data, it's not always so clear that that's the case, uh, it, 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 it's kind of an idea that's out there. Uh, and the reason that I think it's not in the data uh, uh, so clearly as it is in the theory uh, is that there are other factors that determine uh, environmental quality, not just rich. And one thing that you and I have worked a lot on uh, has been, uh, which goes under many guises, but you might call state capacity. Uh, and uh, if you don't have, no matter how rich you get, if you don't have uh, a high functioning state or high functioning government, uh, then it's gonna be very hard uh, to get to the low levels of air pollution. And so that uh, I, I think it, it is not a certainty that air quality will improve in India. Uh, and I'll just, you know, I should have started with this. I'll just start with, uh, I'll just note some facts. You know, since 1998, uh, PM 2.5 concentrations, and PM is probably the worst form of air pollution in terms of human health, uh, have increased from about 35 micrograms per cubic meter to about uh, 56 micrograms per cubic meter in India. That's using satellite data that covers the last two decades. And that increase in air quality, uh, increase in air pollution has been really consequential for the well-being of people in India. Uh, if you take some research associated with the Air Quality Life Index that I created, it would suggest that that increase since 1998 has reduced lifespans by about two years. So I guess to return to your uh, question, uh, I do not think it's a fait accompli that getting rich means uh, air quality or environmental quality uh, will improve. Uh, and the consequences for India, which now has very high levels of air pollution, are, you know, urgent uh, in terms of uh, human well-being. Yeah. So, Michael, that's that's a that's an uh, you know interesting starting point to maybe you know when we start thinking about state capacity, um, you know, some of the work that we've been doing and it's taken us sort of the best part of a decade was to put in place, um, you know, a cap and trade market in Gujarat and see if uh, that helps deal with um, regulating industrial air pollution any any better. And I think, you know, the mere fact that it could, that it took 10 years makes you sometimes wonder whether the idea's time came independently of whether we were there or not. You know, we start suggesting something in 2011, but the fates have deemed it to occur in the arc of development only in, in 2021 or whatever. But that aside, I, I wanted to ask you whether you think, well, two things. First, uh, it would be useful for people to just very quickly uh, hear about what we found um, in using that emissions uh, trading scheme in Surat and, and maybe how it links up with um, some of your earlier work on, on the failure of existing regulation. But I was also hoping we could couple that, you know, with with this question on whether uh, 
whether the academic literature on, on, on how we talk about environmental regulation is missing something when we think about developing countries. Because the only thing we keep hearing about cap and trade schemes, for example, is that they're cheap. This is efficient environmental regulation. You can cut pollution in many ways. This way, you'll cut pollution more cheaply. Uh, but to some extent, what we see in, in India is you're not able to cut pollution in, in many ways. And perhaps the biggest contribution of the emission trading scheme, and you can describe exactly what we found, was that you were able to cut pollution this way. Now, that's a very different uh, reason to try out this instrument, and it's not really in the theory as we talk about it. So, so is there something there taking on your academic hat that we need to um, right. think differently about? Yeah, so let me even back up a little bit further and then I'll try and work my way to uh, emissions trading. And I, I recognize, uh, I forgot to mention my first co-author in India uh, was Esther Duflo, uh, who we started working on clean cook stoves in Orissa maybe even 15 years ago, but then began to work in Gujarat uh, uh, with Rohini uh, and Nick. And, and then we had... Uh, what we discovered from that, which I think relates to emissions trading, is that we all kind of had this idea that the regulator could perfectly and easily figure out who was polluting what and when. Uh, then just look it up, compare it to the regulations and go, oh, well, this person is, uh, this plant is above the standards. That'll be that. We'll issue a monetary penalty very quickly, very efficiently, uh, and uh, things will everyone will get in compliance. We kind of thought, at least I began uh, my work in India thinking that that's the way it worked. It turns out that's not the way it works. Uh, it's very difficult for the regulator to often figure out who's polluting what. Uh, in some of this early work, we were able to document that the information they were getting was corrupted, uh, uh, where Plants were hiring auditors uh, to report low readings, even though the data suggested high readings. Uh, and it also turned out that it was not very easy for the regulator to punish plants, kind of a situation where no one benefits. Uh, the, it's difficult for the regulator to punish plants, uh, but the plants are scared of the regulator because when they do punish them, uh, it, it's very severe. They can shut them down for periods of time. Uh, but of course, that severity makes the regulators, uh, you know, hesitant to impose those penalties. And so it was turned out that it was not at all like the textbook case. Uh, the real world was messy. Uh, and which I guess brings uh, us to this discussion about emissions trading. And I think at some level, even though we were learning on the ground uh, that things were not so clean and easy, uh, we thought, Boy, emissions trading has such a good reputation. As you said, it's cheap, cheap, cheap. It's like the triple win, cheaper for government, cheaper for industry, uh, and would lead to better environmental quality. It's got to be that this will work. And so we set out on this adventure, which I think uh, I'm hesitant to even try and figure out the exact year it began. <laughs> it could be maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, and the first realization was boy, uh, data is at the, is the foundation of emissions trading program. You have to know who who is polluting and how much they're polluting kind of really minute by minute. Uh, and so the first part of what we did was to 
uh, work with the Goudreau Pollution Control Board, and they mandated uh, continuous emissions monitors. These are incredibly cool technologies. Uh, you put them on the pipe, uh, and they measure in real time, I guess 15 seconds by 15 seconds or something like that, uh, how much pollution is coming out. And we thought this would be like turning on the light in a dark room, and in and of itself, it would uh, improve uh, environmental quality. Uh, as a regular would have much more reliable information on uh, what was happening. Now, the sad truth was it was a great struggle to get reliable continuous emissions monitors installed. Uh, it was, uh, they, they often, the readings were often, uh, did not reflect the reality on the ground. Uh, and there was just a lot of resistance to even installing them. So I don't know, you know, and that this is my work as much, your work as much as mine. So I don't know if you want to add a little color for the listeners here. Yeah, no, I think uh, some of the challenges that you see in, you know, regulation without continuous monitoring were very much transferring to continuous monitoring. It's hard for the state to to put down a complicated set of rules that um, that will be obeyed and to use data from that. And I think in that sense, um, it was not, it, it was maybe not hugely surprising that, um, uh, that you're not able to get good data out of these machines if you're not able to get good data out of, out of the manual monitoring, um, at least within the current. I thought one of the interesting things was how the, the incentives that a market create interact with the measurement technology and i think that's that's again something that maybe people have not paid so much attention to and i i certainly hadn't thought of that way you sort of have data then once you have data you decide what to you do with the data but i think one of the interesting things that we saw was you were never able to get good data out of these continuous monitoring systems not because the technology is different but because people have to use them and maintain them until you put in place a market where there were financial penalties associated with not reporting that data. And there's a larger lesson, I think, in that for India, because the Central Pollution Control Board has mandated these continuous monitoring systems across the country. Uh, they talk about that often. And the data is not being used for any purpose. And I think what we saw in Gujarat is that when you don't use this data, what you're getting is, is pretty meaningless information at the end low quality and so on. Yeah, and let me just add, so that was, you know, you uh, delivered the punchline. Mm -hmm. Punchline was continuous emissions monitoring in our in our research, uh, terrific idea, uh, not super useful in practice by itself. Uh, and not only, uh, but what I, I was especially struck by uh, was it was just a terrible slog to get people to install the continuous emissions monitors uh, and to get them to install them in a credible way when that was the end in and of itself. But once there was a market uh, and firms were effectively paying for uh, not having reliable readings, uh, it was like turning on the light. Uh, and you then saw an enormous improvement uh, in continuous emissions monitoring and in the quality of the monitoring. And that wasn't in the textbooks of how emissions trading systems should work, but the idea that you could use financial penalties that were much smaller piece by piece than like shutting down the plant uh, could induce reliable monitoring. I think that was a you know, important result in and of itself. 
uh, and a key building block to getting to uh, uh, improvements in air quality. So I think maybe now there's been so much buildup, why don't I just get to the punchline? Yeah. Uh, the punchline is uh, we ran an experiment uh, with the Gujarat Pollution Control Board. Uh, 100, about 150 plants or industries were randomly assigned to a treatment group, just like in a regular experiment, uh, and 150 were assigned to a control group. In a treatment group, they were regulated through an emissions trading program where there were they had to pay effectively and hold permits uh, for uh, every unit of pollution, in this case, uh, particulates uh, that they emitted. And the control group, they continued to be regulated in the standard way, which was periodic, maybe once or twice a year visits by the regulator, uh, very clunky penalties that, uh, as we we're talking about, could, your plants could be closed, uh, but not much else. Uh, and this remarkable thing happened uh, in the treatment group emissions went down by about 25% uh, relative to the control group. And so you can say emissions trading caused about a 25% reduction uh, in uh, 20 to 25% reduction in particulates emissions in uh, among the 150 uh, treatment plants. And so that was not in the textbooks either. Uh, in the textbooks, uh, was much more about cost savings. Uh, and what we were able to show is you not only can get very low costs on industry by from the flexibility market, uh, but the regulator's ability to bring pollution down was greatly enhanced. Uh, and so that was kind of a surprising, I, 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 for me, it was a finding that I didn't uh, expect. And then, you know, is since everyone likes Hollywood endings, uh, you know, the Hollywood ending of that is a Gujarat Pollution Control Board in the state of Gujarat was so taken with the results that they have now expanding uh, emissions trading from Surat, which is where the pilot was, uh, to other parts of Gujarat for particulates. Uh, and uh, we signed an MOU with the chief minister back in May uh, to help develop an emissions trading program for carbon dioxide uh, for the state of Gujarat. And so it's kind of a victory for uh, research it's a victory for using research to guide to help guide policy uh but i think much more so on the improving state capacity than on the way we might have thought that emissions trading were going to work i don't know if that's your yeah. interpretation as well no i think so and i i mean i guess that's that's something i wanted to uh probe a little bit with you because i remember when i started this project um you know one concern I had was okay. This is this is um, um, at least as an academic matter kind of boring. We'll make this rule and then they'll obey the rule and then we'll say they obeyed the rule. Um, so of course, right? And 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 so I remember almost starting out thinking this may not be uh, of great academic interest to uh, to people. They might think it's obvious. Uh, this was way back when we you know I proposed this idea and it was all going to go smoothly in in two or three years, but it's uh, it's probably a really important um, uh, policy move uh, for India that it would be uh, useful to be part of if you could think of something that would reduce pollution. And, and that's kind of a, 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 the sort of the sense I got from many other uh, environmental economists who I was talking to naming no names. And so I, I guess my question is, is there something missing about how more broadly as a as a profession of academics. I mean, a lot of your work, including your work with Rema, 
is asking a question that you could crudely frame as, does this regulation work? Um, and that's also the question that any government, you know, minister or official will ask you when you come with an idea, is this going to work? Um, but the, will this work or not work is completely missing in any of the sort of uh, classroom teaching that at least I went through in any environmental economics courses I did, which took whether it works or not as given, and then we're analyzing distribution or efficiency or costs or, you know, things of that nature. And I'm wondering whether as a, you know, as someone who's been a journal editor and as someone in the profession, are there more systematic ways to think about this interaction of state capacity and instruments that you use? Um, you know, do you think people are coming more around to recognizing that the whether it works question is first order and, you know, efficiency? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I was actually trained as a laborer economic student. And I remember, uh, you know, the fundamental question we were when there was some kind of program evaluation in labor economics was always, uh, well, are those just black marks on a white page? Or does this policy actually produce something? Uh, and in labor economics, quite often job training programs don't deliver what they're supposed to deliver, uh, and things like that. And I think in energy and environmental economics, there had been, uh, there had not been quite that connection to the real world. Uh, and so you had these kind of truisms, you had these truisms that market, the emissions markets uh, work, we don't even really need to evaluate them. I think that's probably what people were whispering in your ear. Why would you bother doing this? We know from the textbook that's gonna work. Uh, I wanna connect that to the environmental Kuznets curve. Don't worry. You're just going to get rich, and once you get rich, uh, everything will be fine. Uh, but in a lot of parts of the world, there's a lot of gray, uh, and I think that gray is where a lot of the most interesting problems exist, most important problems, uh, and where, through you know, careful understanding of the incentives that people face the different actors, the regulator, the polluter, the public, do uh, careful examination of that, uh, you can devise uh, solutions to what at times can seem like uh, in, in, intractable problems. I, I, I think uh, my uh, initial collaborator in all this, Esther flow, I think refers that to as, you know, being a plumber uh, and trying to make sure that the pipes work correctly and you have to tighten one pipe to the other. Uh, and it's, it can sound kind of boring. It can sound a little uh, granular, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, that's what determines, in, in my experience, and I believe you have the same conclusion, that it determines the air that people breathe, and the air that people breathe determines how long they get to live and how sick, uh, whether or not they're sick while they're alive. And I just think there's a lot of opportunity in this gray or in the messiness uh, of the real world. Uh, or that doesn't exist in the textbook pages. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I'm going to move on in a bit to some of your work on, on climate change. Um, you know, before that, I just wanted to kind of, you know, one thing that uh, a lot of environmentalists and, and, you know, environmental scientists in India have been pointing out is that uh, 
you know, a significant chunk of air pollution in India, by some estimates, maybe 50% of total pollution can be attributed to uh, the biomass that millions and hundreds of millions of people are burning in homes every single day uh, to cook and to eat. Um, most of our work has focused on sort of more formal sources of pollution, uh, which require kind of regulatory instruments and what they should be and how they work. And those play an oversized role in, in, in cities, certainly. Um, but if you think about the, the clean cooking problem, which you referred to, a little earlier, which is, I think, where your India um, sort of research started out with clean cook stoves. The broader question of how you how you cut down biomass burning in homes is also an air pollution question, but it's also an an energy question, I guess. So you know, this uh, the I think that's that's sort of a interesting place where some of the research that we've been doing on how we get electricity into homes connects very much with this air pollution problem that um, people who work on industrial regulation are often accused of ignoring that the reason we're polluted is that there's a lot of biomass being burned inside homes. Uh, and one of the ways you could move away from burning biomass in homes is to use electricity to uh, to cook instead. Um, and and you know that kind of links to this question of why is there why are people not using electricity? to cook when it's a pretty cheap fuel as far as prices go. So I might circle back to that a little bit at the end of this talk if we have time. I don't know if, if we will, but there's a lot of research that the two of us have been doing on trying to answer the electricity question. I can't say we've you know knocked everything out there, but I think it does link together with air pollution um, through this dimension. I don't know if you have any kind of thoughts you want yeah. to throw in on that. Let, uh, let, let me, yeah. no, thank you. It's a really important question here's my view. There is a fetish. If you're an environmental economist, there can be a fetishization of uh, just looking at the environment. And if you're an energy economist, there can be a fetishization of only looking uh, at energy. And I think, uh, or electricity demand, uh, I think what that misses is what every community in India, country of India, uh, other countries, Pakistan, Bangladesh, the EU, the United States, the whole world is struggling with is something that I think of as the global energy challenge. Uh, and that global energy challenge is not just about focusing on environmental quality. In fact, I think of it as a stool that has three legs. Uh, and it is the need for societies to find inexpensive and reliable sources of energy. So if you can't depend on the grid, uh, then you're going to find something else. So the first goal that I think societies face is how do we get inexpensive and reliable energy uh, to their people? Uh, and the second goal is how do you avoid doing that without uh, leading to these terrible levels of air pollution uh, that are cause people to lead shorter and sicker lives? And the third leg of the stool is how do you do that without causing disruptive climate change? And the problem is that the fossil fuels, be they uh, biomass, or coal or natural gas or oil uh, often uh, involve the release of particulates and involve the release of CO2. Uh, and so what all societies are trying to do is to find a way to balance between those goals. And so to only focus on one of those goals, I think is uh, to miss uh, the big picture and miss what people are trying to, and societies are, are, are trying to sort out. 
Yeah, and it's ironic because that biomass is a renewable energy source. Um, and so it have often gets talked about as um, at least maybe not so much within India where people are more exposed to it, but uh, kind of more broadly as, oh, this is renewable energy. This is a large portion of India's primary energy mix is renewable, therefore clean. And I think that's that's really interesting because, you know, um, it's probably doing a lot more damage than turning to a, uh, you know, larger scale fossil fuel like coal in a power plant would do. Um, yeah. If it was, uh, and I know you're trying to put guardrails on this conversation, but let me just break through one of them for a second. Uh, you know, part of the problem is, uh, uh, and how state capacity is a thread that runs uh, through all of this, is that uh, there's been tremendous progress in connecting to the grid in the last five, six, seven years uh, under Prime Minister Modi, but they're, they can't depend on the grid. Uh, and in, in many instances, uh, and there are blackouts uh, and uh, just a failure to supply electricity in many settings. And the reason uh, for that is that the basic contours of setting up a market where people get electricity in exchange for paying money uh, that characterizes really all uh, effective markets where people pay for the good uh, doesn't exist. Uh, in many parts of India or has been compromised. Uh, and that's because electricity has become a right. Uh, and the challenge with electricity becoming a right uh, is that that means you don't have to pay for it. Uh, and if you don't have to pay for it, uh, then that means the distribution company is gonna lose money. Uh, and so you have this really, really uh, bizarre setting where uh, the distribution companies in many instances wanna sell less electricity because they lose money on every kilowatt they sell. Uh, and so just think about that. You couldn't have an ice cream shop or you couldn't have uh, a cellular phone service uh, where the company wants to sell less of its good. Uh, and so that, and I think that it relates to state capacity and that relates to politics. And there is a clear relationship between that and the use of biomass uh, and, the, and the pollution and CO2 problems that India is facing. Yeah, and it's interesting because the um, the Indian Prime Minister has been uh, railing against what he called freebie culture um, um, in a number of speeches recently, uh, where he's basically targeting um, electricity subsidies and the culture of giving electricity for free, um, which you know in turn arguably leads into the willingness of people not to pay their bills because if they are being written off half the time, it can't be a, a very big deal in general it's interesting because the pushback that uh, that uh, he got from some of the opposition parties that it was directed to um was that they went on a rally and were and 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 said that you know the prime minister is against freebies um so you can get ready to pay for healthcare and pay for education um if uh, if the bjp has its way which is something that then you know they of course had to push back on um, but it, it it underscores this really interesting question that uh, you have to philosophically distinguish between um, things like healthcare and education, or maybe you don't, but, but at least a lot of people, including many economists, are perfectly happy thinking of healthcare and education as being uh, goods and services that the government provides and pays for. 
um, without necessarily thinking electricity is in that same bucket. But what you're seeing in this kind of political conversation in India is, uh, is a contestation of that fact. Yes, conveniently for political rhetorical purposes, but it was very clear that there wasn't a pat response as to why is it that if you're saying you're against freebie culture, it's going to apply only to electricity and it's not going to apply to your school suddenly becoming uh, expensive. And yeah. you know, I don't know if you've, if you've got a, a one line as an economist answer as to why one is uh, one should be a market and the other uh, should not be. So I, I think the key challenge uh, it, there is, so there's a couple things. One is when you think there's a market failure uh, and uh, we think, we often think that there are market failures associated with the provision of uh, health insurance. Uh, and uh, we often think that uh, the returns to education are larger socially than they are privately. Uh, and those are good explanations for uh, why you might have lots of government involvement in those sectors. Uh, there is a second reason, a kind of redistribution reason in a, a uh, that you might want to intervene in some of these markets. And I guess this comes back to state capacity in some sense. Uh, you know, if you want, if uh, electricity, it's harder, not impossible, but it's harder to come up with explanations for why there are, uh, my consuming electricity, uh, it has some larger benefit than whatever benefit I derive from it. Uh, but it's not hard to think of important distributional questions around uh, electricity that uh, everyone should have some minimal access to it. Uh, the obvious solution to that is to have different rate structures uh, and or, or, or to fix people up uh, through the tax code with, uh, uh, with one-off payments uh, that aren't tied to electricity consumption to make the, to protect the poor. Uh, that has been super hard to implement uh, in India. And so if when we've tried to, if you try to lower the electricity rates for one group, everyone kind of benefits from it. And so then the whole thing uh, unravels. And so I think it's this inability to A, theoretically define where there should be government intervention and B, uh, to implement it in, in a very uh, clear way uh, where, intervention is warranted. And that comes back to state capacity uh, that makes it such a complicated uh, problem. And one where you can see people who have good intentions kind of end up uh, in strange places. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's certainly a humbling area to, uh, to work in. I mean, um, uh, Nick and I, yeah, I think you should talk about that for a minute. Yeah, I think. Yeah, really on on on, can you deliver this assistance in different ways? So, for example, instead of giving people free electricity, can you sort of use unconditional cash transfers um, of an equal value instead, and then charge them for that power? Now that is economically efficient. It's much more transparent. It's a cash transfer to people, which is a redistribution of a sort. The government is. Um, is is perfectly okay with. And I think we found that there's a lot of uh, something that uh, farmers tend to like. Everybody likes cash, um, which they can use to buy power or they could use it to buy something else. Um, and politicians tend to like it as well because politicians love giving out cash, um, recognizing that that's maybe even more uh, 
nice than giving out electricity. Um, I think it does raise political economy considerations, though, which kind of gets to, I think, you know, it sort of harkens back to some of the theory work that Abhijit Banerjee did a long time ago, because there's an entity in the middle, which is the state electricity regulator. And it's not obvious that for the state electricity regulator, um, it's better to have a world where you have to go and collect bills from millions of farmers and figure out how to meter them and 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 do all of that stuff as opposed to say the status quo where you say there's a subsidy we give it all for free and then we collect a check from uh, the government at the end of of every year so there's an entity in the middle which operationally is is left worse off potentially by this movement to a functioning market because they're the entity that has to actually implement that market. And so, you know, that is sort of, you You might think of it as just, it's a, just a irritating minor logistical implementation detail, but in the context of, of kind of trying to change policy, you know, pretty much everyone has a veto power if they if they're determined to exercise it down the chain of, of, of government. So I think, you know, there's there's a there's a bunch of work that some people have been doing on the political economy of distribution utilities and, and how they function in India, and I think that's um, that's quite central, not necessarily to the theory of what you might want to do, but to whether it's easy to do or very or very difficult to do. Yeah, and I, I look, I just want to connect that. It can all sound wonky, state capacity and political economy and all these big words, uh, and those are important words. They help describe the problem in uh, uh, clear ways that you and I can communicate with each other. But like at the end of the day, that translates into different levels of air pollution that people have to breathe. It translates into an inability to purchase uh, electricity, even if you want to. Uh, and the absence of that electricity doesn't let you run your business the way you want, or you have to run it in a more expensive way. It's a tax on the economy. And those are like, real impacts on real people's lives. And so uh, I think, you know, the importance of understanding with great care what the source of that tension is, uh, and if there's, you know, not to be wonky, incentive compatible ways uh, to solve it for all the actors involved, as you point out, uh, uh, including in the example you were using, uh, the state electricity boards. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, a good lesson that I, you know, I've um, at least had to remind occasionally RAs and so on of is that, you know, when you see something that uh, seems dumb happening in government, it's not normally because you're the smartest person in the room and everybody else is an idiot. At age 20. It's normally because you're not understanding, you know, there's, there's someone in there who's benefiting from this. There's, there's, there's some, uh, you know, there's some outcome that a policy is achieving that maybe you didn't think of. And that is, you know, a reason for it being there. People are using rations for some reason, or people have free electricity for another reason, but it's very rarely because, you know, um, nobody thought of, uh, a textbook solution that you did. But I just want to move um, move quickly before we close this in the last five or seven minutes to uh, some of the work that you are doing on climate change. Um, you're the director of the Climate Impact Lab at the University of Chicago. Now, climate change was the climate indicators was the, were the portion of this Yale Environmental Performance Index uh, that 
took possibly the most criticism um, uh, within India. Um, I'm not going to discuss, you know, that it's it's not necessarily relevant to your work. The criticism was mostly because most of those are framed as growth indicators. So when you start out with very little carbon, your carbon emissions are going to grow. So if you use that as your indicator of environmental performance, you're sort of guaranteed to put developing countries at the bottom of the list. And I think there's, there's uh, some fairness to that critique. But at the Climate Impact Lab, you've been working a lot on trying to aggregate and, you know, feel free to correct me if this is uh, not the one line summary you would use. You've been trying to do a lot of work you're, as, as a big team on trying to aggregate up measures of damages from um, from global climate change and use those those empirically founded damages to come up with a social cost of carbon. Um, and I guess I had sort of two uh, questions to that. One, you know, climate change is a global global problem, and in the in international climate negotiations, we're not using a social cost of carbon to apportion responsibility. We're using national targets, and so why should we use uh, damages estimates of damages to come up with a social cost of carbon when you could argue that you know once you come out of a Paris meeting or anything else. Uh, you've already got your your country target in mind, and any prices you set should be, you know, set to meet that country target. So, so how do you think about this academic strand of work, which is trying to come up with a social cost of carbon, as interacting with what governments are actually doing, which is when they go to these meetings, they say we will cut emissions by so much, or we will cap emissions to this level of two thousand five values, or so on. So let me start with like the kind of use case that motivated setting up the Climate Impact Lab. So uh, it came out of uh, my time in the US government uh, and uh, the way the US government works for regulations, uh, and so in particular climate regulations, uh, is there has to be a cost benefit analysis. Uh, and the cost benefit analysis is some effort to assess whether or not a policy or regulation that would restrict CO2 emissions uh, is worth it. And the costs there are the costs on industry and consumers and the benefits are the reduction uh, in CO2. And that's like the granular, that's the policy making that actually happens. Uh, the problem was uh, the US government had no coherent social cost of carbon. Uh, and so you had maybe like the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, arguing that every ton of CO2, the damages from that were infinite uh, and you had other agencies, maybe like the Department of Transportation uh, that wants to promote driving, at least in this period when I worked uh, in, in the Obama administration, uh, arguing that the social cost carbon should be zero. And so the idea, uh, because they want to promote, promote more driving, and the idea was, hey, if you have a fight between tons of CO2 and dollars, the dollars are always going to win. Uh, and so what if you could convert the CO2 into monetary damages and then everything would be on the same playing field. Uh, and so what we set out to do with the Climate Impact Lab was improve. So after the US, I collected a process to set the US government social cost of carbon, and then I left government and with some colleagues set up the Climate Impact Lab to kind of rebuild our understanding of climate damages. Uh, and the, and as you said, to empirically found it. And the purpose of that was to figure out, uh, well, what does it cost the world every time an additional ton of CO2 is uh, released? Uh, and we have <clears throat> developed 
uh, estimates that are now maybe four or five times larger than had been previously understood. Uh, and so what is the use of that? I think it's valuable uh, for running policy where you have to compare costs and benefits. Uh, and more broadly, it gives you a sense uh, of what the damages uh, from climate change are going to be. And that can be useful and maybe not quite the direct way you're imagining international negotiations, but in helping to set a target for where, what a country or what the world uh, should be aiming to achieve in terms of CO2 reductions and kind of give a bright line of uh, where the benefits uh, stop being larger uh, than the cost. So th that, that's all kind of, you know, not specific to India. I, I do want to turn to India though. Uh, and it's uh, why I think India is such an important place uh, in the world really on all elements of what I think of as uh, the global energy challenge. We've been talking about environment and we've been emphasizing local air quality. We've been talking about energy access. Uh, and But there's this third leg of the stool, which is uh, climate change. And one thing that comes out of our work at the Climate Impact Lab is that the impact of a ton of CO2 is very different uh, is going to be very different depending on where you are in the world. Uh, and so, I, you know, I'll start with like uh, the easier to discuss ones, like if you take Norway or Oslo, so it's a, it's a rich, that is a rich part of the world. It's pretty cold. So the wealth allows, is going to allow them to adapt to changes in the climate pretty easily. Uh, and uh, the fact that it's already cold, it's actually probably too cold for humans. Uh, and uh, so they're going to probably benefit on, on, on that from uh, climate change, at least the direct impacts. And what is now to turn to India, what's very different in India is it's a much poorer place and it's a, uh, also a, already a very hot place uh, and kind of at the edges of uh, where it's comfortable and easy uh, to lead rich, uh, to lead lives. And the, what has emerged from this research is that India is kind of ground zero for climate damages. Uh, it's already, it's poor to begin with relative on a global scale uh, and it's already hot and it's gonna be very exposed uh, to climate damages. And uh, uh, so that I think it has caused me to think more deeply and understand more deeply how these differences in uh, climate impacts are gonna be so critical for how the world adapts. And indeed, I'm looking at it, I put up a, a map on my screen just so to remind myself before we started talking. Uh, if you had a world without lines on them, and we're gonna call it, those lines are borders, uh, what's so obvious is there's parts of the world where it's gonna become much easier and much more pleasant to live. And there's parts of the world where it's gonna become very, very hard to live. And the, the, for instance, the summer Pakistan is having is really an important example of how hot and all the flooding. And in a world without lines or borders, you just have people move. Uh, you'd have, uh, and it might be, it's not easy to leave where you live, but you'd have at least some people decide, you know what, this is too hard. Uh, and you would have people moving to Canada and you would have people moving uh, to Siberia and other places that are kind of cold now. And of course, that's not how the world works. There's lines and those lines are gonna make it uh, very, very complicated politically, 
Uh, I don't think the Russia is intent on letting several hundred million Indians move in, and I'm not even sure uh, several hundred million Indians would want to. But like, there at least be some pressure in that direction, and that's where uh, the climate impacts are. I, I think the most troubling is it's a little bit hard to know exactly how that's all going to get uh, sorted out. Uh, but to come back to the you know our our theme here, India. Uh, you know, India is a place uh, where the damages from climate change are going to impose great costs and put all kinds of direct costs, but political pressure on uh, India and the world to figure out how to sort that out. No, I think, you know, that this whole question of climate damages and its impact on things like migration and adaptation, I think, would make a super important podcast in itself. Um, just before we close, I mean, one... And let's just pull the thread through of state capacity. like Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, one thing we've seen, uh, so India and Pakistan, uh, the Pakistan uh, Prime Minister just yesterday um, announced that they want to reopen the trade links between India and Pakistan because after this flood and the summer food prices are through the roof in Pakistan and the only way in which you you might be able to survive is you import food from your neighbor. So, you know, that's an example of you have politics coming in the way and now in the light of these dramatic climate damages and I think a growing recognition that they're not getting better, they're going to get worse, you've actually potentially have a breakthrough and have some trade, but that's goods and services, it's not people. Um, and, you know, as you as you point out, what would really be effective adaptation is to move people. And there doesn't seem to be much hope that that will, um, that that can happen in the world we live in. And, you know, I'll add, I know we're kind of out of time here, but I'll just add, I think I somewhat probably naively had, uh, you know, too high expectations about state capacity globally. Uh, and, where I've really kind of adjusted downwards is after the uh, the coronavirus crisis. Uh, and you just saw countries around the world having, it is such a, so obvious what was happening. It's, uh, in many instances, it was clear what needed to happen. Uh, and you just had countries around the world having a hard time protecting their own people and certainly a terrible time trying to collaborate. Uh, and you think about that in the context of the climate problem, which is not a virus that is probably going to be around for a couple of years. It's a virus that's going to be around for decades or hundreds of years. And, uh, you know, I guess there'll be more time to work out solutions, but I just want to connect it to our discussion about state capacity around electricity uh, and conventional pollution. Uh, it's going to, dealing with climate change is going to require a lot of state capacity. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a that's a that's a nice analogy. I um, if there was what's what coronavirus has convinced me of is if there's ever an alien invasion, then the world is not <laughs> not going to fight put a successful counterattack, and maybe climate change is akin to that. But yeah. um, I think we're out of time. So thanks very much, Michael, for um, for joining me for this and you know making time and. I think this is the last of the i for i conversation series. So this conversation is the capstone. <laughs> uh, well, thank you uh, for leading this discussion. And as I uh, 
tried to say at the outset, you know, it was a flip of the coin, I think. Uh, should I be interviewing you or should you be interviewing me? And I'm, I'm glad we were able to have a fulsome conversation. Yeah, thanks, Michael.